0: Let me introduce it. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Oh, let me this okay. fix this for you. This okay. fix this for you. Okay. There you go. All That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're continuing our series in Genesis. And uh, today's lesson about Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, and uh, I think the best way to explain that relationship is basic human conflict, just like Ralph Cramden in today's. <clears throat> hey, if you'll turn in your Bible to uh, Genesis 12, we're going to cover a lot of ground. we're going to go from Genesis 12 to 22, 11 chapters, should be no problem. <laughs> yeah, we you just turn that off and we're good to go. Thank you. All right. Have you ever noticed the uh amount of attention given a few tiny countries in the Middle East? Anybody else ever been amazed by you know, how the whole the eyes of the whole world are focused on the Middle East, you know, Syria and Iraq and and uh, Israel and everything that's going on there is always in the news. And every literally everything that we have anything to do with seems to always come back to that. You know, the terrorist deal all started there. And it's because of our stance there with Israel that we got all embroiled in it. And when you think about it, it's really kind of wild. Because Israel, you know, you think about those countries there, Israel only has about $8 million Jews there and Syria has about they used to have 16 million I don't know how many they got now <laughs> a lot less and Saudi Arabia's got about 30 million so they're, they're really small countries that should be you would think they'd be insignificant but they're not it's, it's like the whole world revolves around everything that's going on in the Middle East so why does no one in the Middle East get along that, that's the second thing the world's attention is always on that little area. I mean, you've got all these superpowers, China and Russia and the United States with all these huge populations and all this uh, landmass. And Yet the whole world's watching this little bitty area in the Middle East where no one gets along. And there's always wars and there's always fighting there. And it's always been like that. So, so what's, what's the answer? This, it's been like that for 4,000 years very simple answer, Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. That's today's lesson. You're going to see in the Bible today the roots of this, this mess that we have over there in the Middle East that's literally unsolvable. You're going to see how it all got started here uh, when we get into Genesis 16. So the Bible has Uh, Ishmael as the illegitimate uh, first son of Abraham and he has a legitimate son Isaac by his real wife Sarah. And in Genesis 16 we'll see the historical events that occurred over 4,000 years ago that were the roots of what's going on now in the Middle East, roots of all the trouble. And Isaac's, uh, his descendants, their religion It's based on our Old Testament Bible, and it's commonly called Judaism, right? Ishmael's descendants, his half-brother, we call Arabs, and their religion is Islam, another major world religion, and the people are called Muslims, right? So Judaism is thought to have been uh, begun around 1400 B.C., when... Moses got got the law from God there at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law, and God gave him the rest of the Old Testament. While Islam was actually started in 610 A.D., so that's 2,000 years later. So it's uh, it's the new religion on the block, so to speak. When you look at how old uh, Judaism is, goes back, you know, to 1,400. And Christianity goes back to uh, the time of Christ, of course, you know, around 32 AD. And so Islam is the last major religion to come on the scene. And, and where did it come from? Uh, Muhammad was a merchant there in the Middle East, and he would take caravans from uh, Arabia, Saudi Arabia now, into uh, what's now Israel. The, the Holy Land and Jerusalem and all around there, and he would trade with Jews and Christians. And so he got to know a little bit about the, the Jews and the Christians' uh, religion and their, and their Bible, and he was impressed with the unity that the Jews had, how they stuck together, and the unity that the Christians had, how they stuck together. And so he began thinking about that and how important it would be for the Arabs because the Arabs uh, had all these different tribes and they were polytheistic at that time. They had many gods. Each tribe had their own god and none of the tribes got along. And They were always fighting and it was just a big mess. And he thought, you know, perhaps if they, had, they were unified in a religion with one god, you know, they would have unity like the Jews did. And so he was supposedly, uh, according to his memoirs, was uh, praying in a cave in the year 610 A.D., and he says that the archangel Gabriel spoke to him and began to give him revelations, which ended up being, and and he continued to give him revelations for 23 years until he died in 632 A.D., and that those revelations, there were 114 of them given over that 23-year period and that's what they call the Koran, the Koran, uh, which is their their religious book. So, uh, people have actually told me, well, in the Koran, just like our Bible, and isn't it isn't the same God, the same God of uh, of Islam as is it Judaism and also Christianity? Uh, It seems like most of the world thinks that it's the same God and has basically the same precepts, you know, in each book and that they're closely related. Well, not so fast. (laughs) I begged it ever, obviously. The Bible, let's just look at the Bible real quick, overview of the Bible. It's 66 books, 66 different books compiled together written by 40 different authors. 40 different authors, most of which did not know each other. And they were, it was written, those uh, 66 books were written over 1,500 years. So a long period of time, a lot of different authors, and all those, ba- all those books were brought together to become this one book that we call the Bible. The amazing thing about it is throughout these 66 books, you have a chronological, historical narrative. How is that even possible? That all these different guys that didn't know each other, that wrote for over such a long period of time, that this book could come together like that and have that kind of narrative in it. Historical, chronological narrative. It's amazing, really. I mean, it's almost as if God engineered it. (laughs) <laughs> Obviously. On the other hand, the Quran is one book. It's just one book with one author, written over 23 years, and it contains references to over uh, 50 people and events in the Bible. So basically, uh, what Muhammad, or in his you know words, the angel Gabriel. What he did actually is take the history of the Bible and all the biblical characters going back. He had he started with Adam and Eve, and he has all basically the same characters from the Old Testament, and he even includes in the Quran uh, some references to Jesus and what he did in the New Testament. Okay, so it's one book, one author, or 23 years contains all the characters and stories that are in the Bible and, all, and many of the events that are in the Bible, but it is, not, it is not a historical narrative and has no chronology. It's 114 chapters. It's kind of like, you know, he just got together with uh, Gabriel or whichever angel it was, fallen angel probably, and, and got a revelation which he kind of wrote, and that was like a chapter. And in the, in, the, in the Quran they call those surahs or chapters. And so it's not a historical narrative. It's just kind of some sayings and some wisdom and some commands and, and uh, uh, references to stories. Uh, it, it's really kind of a, you know, I, hate, I don't mean to criticize it, but it's just very, very, di- I've read it, by the way, because I knew that somebody here needed to. <laughs> and I knew that's my job, to save you all the trouble. But after reading it like that, I just kind of shook my head, and I said, I, that's, you know, I have no idea what just happened there. You know, I just went through the discipline of, of reading that. Uh, so there's, it, it makes it very difficult to read because it's not chronological. There is no historical narrative. It's it's just these uh, supposed revelations that he got that he didn't even write it down. It was oral, orally transferred to his uh, disciples, and they wrote it down after he died. So it's uh, just some kind of collection of revelations. Uh, And obviously to us, he borrowed most of it from the Bible, and then changed it to suit his needs. For instance, he had, at the time, had four wives, and so he put that in there. (laughs) A man can have four wives, a woman can have one husband. A man can divorce any of his wives easily just by telling them to get out of here, and a woman could not get a divorce and on and on, so uh, it's, it's very much uh, like the Bible in reference to the characters and the stories that explain the beginnings and creation and, and what have you, but it, it, it's totally different from the Bible. And in, in the Quran, uh, Muhammad uh, makes reference that Ishmael and Abraham were his uh, father's, so he's closely related. Comes directly from, uh, of course, Abraham, the very first Muslim. Uh, Muhammad claims, and then his uh, son, and and I know this will amaze you, but in his version, Ishmael is legitimate, and he's the primary son. He's the main son in the Quran. So, Muhammad believed. That also that uh, and and had it written that Ishmael was the preferred son, and he's also the son. You know, in Genesis 22, Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, you know, to prove his faith. Well, in the Quran, uh, Abraham takes Ishmael there, and so they believe that it was Ishmael that that was taken to Mount Moriah, there in which is now Jerusalem. The theology, just a, just quick. Uh, difference in the theology in the two religions uh, in both and uh, all the three religions they're monotheistic meaning there's just one God uh, and so Muhammad uh, was I think got that from Judaism and Christianity and was trying to unify all the tribes of the Arabs and so that was a monotheistic religion they look at Christianity with, with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. they believe that 's uh, idolatry, that there's you know we 've made more than one God when there 's only one God, uh, and they believe Jesus was a prophet but not God in the flesh they don 't believe Jesus died on the cross or that he was resurrected. He was just a, another prophet, uh, as were all the main characters in the Bible' were prophets, but Muhammad is the last and most important prophet, okay? And they believe the Bible was originally the word of God, but the Jews got it and changed it. And so the Koran is the word of God now because the, the Bible uh, was altered, okay? So that's the way they look at the two different books. Uh, they see God, uh, not only uh, one tr- there's only one true God, but they see God different than the God of the Bible. They say God is transcendent. He's way beyond. He's unknowable. He's not personal. By the way, uh, Judaism and Christianity are the only religions where God is personal. And what do I mean by personal? God actually cares individually about people. He actually hears prayers of the individuals, actually reacts and responds to each individual person according to their needs and their prayers and what have you. That's a personal God, and no other religion has that. But uh, so, Islam does not believe in that. They believe that God has already, or Allah in their case, has already predetermined everything. They call it kismet everything that you do and say today was already written you know, from the very beginning and so you don't really have choices you're going to end up where you end up and it's going to happen what's going to happen okay that's one of the reasons you don't see them uh, because of the influence of Islam you don't see that part of the world giving any kind of humanitarian aid or really caring about people at all because it's, you know, it's everything's written it's going to be what, you know, that's going to happen. Oh, they had a terrible hurricane or a, you know, a tsunami or whatever. So? You know, that was predetermined by God, you know? And and so th- th- there's not any kind of humanitarian uh, altruism or any of that that you see in Christianity or Judaism, all right? Uh, also, how, how do they believe you're saved? Uh, salvation... Uh, is by works, and so you literally in the in the Quran says you will be judged. On, there will be a judgment day after you after you die, and you'll be judged. Your good works will literally be weighed against your bad works or evil or whatever, however you want to put it. Okay, and a p- big part of that is what they call the five pillars of faith. Five pillars of faith. You're supposed to. Um, constantly confess that Allah is the only one true God. and So you hear them saying that. They memorize this uh, this sentence and they say it over and over. Uh, and they're supposed to do that all the time. Secondly, they're supposed to prayer, uh, pray five times a day facing uh, Mecca. You've seen them get down on the prayer rugs and everything. They're supposed to give alms 2.5% of their net worth. So it's not your income, it's like, what are you worth? So it's two and a half percent of your assets. It's kind of like your property tax. Uh, also, uh, you're supposed to fax on the uh, fast, excuse me, fast at Ramadan. And then in once in a lifetime, you're, you have a pilgrimage to Mecca. Those are the five pillars, and you're supposed to accomplish that uh, in your life, okay? So it's salvation by works, and of course Christianity is salvation by grace through faith based on what God has done and not what we have done, all right? So my question is, if Islam was derived from Judaism and Isaac and Ishmael were half brothers, why has there been 4,000 years of war? Why can't they get along? Why have they made such a mess of things? And why does it cost $60 to fill up my gas tank? Well, we're going to find out. (laughs) So in uh, chapter 12, we're going to uh, kind of survey through these. We're going so fast. But we can look at the life of Abraham. God chose Abraham out of all the pagan idol worshipers in the world to begin his plan of redemption. In Joshua 24, it literally says that Abraham and his uh, parents his family were pagan idol worshipers, and God appeared to him and said, I have chosen you, and I want you to follow me and come to the land of Canaan, the land I'm going to give you. And so it took a little detour to Haran and took a little time to get there, but eventually uh, in in the New Testament it says God literally had to drag him (laughs) to get him to Canaan, right? And so we're going to look at Abraham's life real quick through a uh, series of tests of faith that he had beginning in chapter 12. He shows up, finally he has the faith to finally show up in Canaan, uh, but, it, but he had to take the detours and God had to drag him out of Haran and what have you. So then when he gets there, he has another test of faith, which is a famine. And it's basically God is saying, are you going to trust me to take care of you? You know, when there's a famine in this land, Can you imagine Abraham, oh, God, he's going to give me this awesome land and he gets there. Has anybody been to Israel? It's basically just a pile of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's very dry. On a good year, they get an inch and a half of rain. See, that's, that's not much, see. <laughs> <laughs> and so he got there and he looked around and he goes, this is it? Gonna give me, I had a lot better deal. And uh, because of the famine, he says, I'm going to go down to Egypt where I know they got, I hear they got a lot of food down there, so I'm going to go down there. So he fails his first test, and uh, he goes, but when he's down there, uh, he picks up something that's going to be very important to the story today, which he gets down there, and of course he lies about his wife, says it's his sister and not his wife, because he's afraid that Pharaoh, his wife's attractive, Pharaoh will take his wife and kill him, so he basically ends up, the net effect of it, he trades his wife for a herd of goats. It, it happened. Sheep and goats and camels. And so that's how they measured wealth. And so God uh, revealed this trickery to Pharaoh, and he was going, whoa, I don't want to mess with this God, you know. And so he blessed Abraham greatly, and he comes out with all this great wealth. Which leads to the third test of faith is when they, they come out. He and his uh, nephew Lot was with him, and they each had large families, and they had gotten along great. But now that they're rich, they don't get along. That's my stuff. No, that's my stuff. Well, we want to graze all of our stuff here. No, that's our. St- that's where we want to graze. You know, suddenly when they all have all this money. They don't get along very well. And so you see them uh, choosing the land, and Abraham graciously gives Lot the first choice there in chapter 13. And then later comes to Lot's defense. Interesting thing, Lot looks over there and sees this green valley and, and these two large cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a lot of commerce being done there, and Lot says, hmm, I'm a real estate executive and I can spot good land when I see it and I'll take that land. And uh, so being a good real estate developer, Lot takes the green land and Abraham gets what's Israel, the pile of rocks, right? Uh, Quick riddle. A hundred dollars dropped on the floor and in the room is a green goblin and a silver monster, and a brown alien, and a real estate developer. A smart real estate developer, I might add. Who, get, who got the $100? Nobody. There's no such thing as any of those. <laughs> and I had to add that. Just, I was in real estate, so I can talk about it. <laughs> And so uh, you you see that uh, he passed these tests with Lot. He he becomes more humble and even saves Lot's uh, rear end at the end of chapter 13 and 14. Uh, He has to fight a battle uh, against great odds, and he trusts God to help him. And you can see his faith being developed. And Abraham, we know that Abraham believed in chapter 15. So look at chapter 15 real quick. God made him some promises. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a a father of many descendants. And they'll become a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world through one of your descendants. And, of course, the New Testament identifies that one descendant as Jesus Christ who is going to bless the world through his sacrifice on the cross. And anybody who believes in him will be saved. So that's the promise. And right here in chapter 15... Again, his faith has been developed to a point where he completely believes God. He's all in now, and you can see that in verse 6. The text says, Then Abraham believed God, believed everything God said and all of his promises, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Let that sink in for just a minute. Because Abraham believed, God basically declared Abraham righteous. Was he righteous? No. He was just a guy like anybody else. And people quite often say, why did he choose Abraham? And I I thought about it and I said, you know, because he's just like us. And he was saved. It just shows you God is consistent. He was saved just like we are saved. We're sinners who are saved by the grace of God and we receive it by faith. Just like us, Abraham, was saved. And so God chose him and he's been consistent ever since in his way and and the means of salvation. And so... In chapter 16, he had, remember he had just said, a, a period of time goes by, and he had said uh, twice so far, I'm going to give you many descendants. You'll be a father of a great nation. So now, many years later, Sarah and Abraham are getting old. They are past the childbearing years. And they're starting to say, you know, I really did believe those promises of God. But what's happened? No children. No children. What has gone on? And so they began to doubt. And they began to do what human beings have always done, which is manipulate, scheme. Question, can you take, can you steal what God wants to give you? No but that's what they're going to try to do. I call it running ahead of God. God had a timetable and a plan to give them a son, but they didn't want to wait. There's not anybody here like that, is there? That Y'all don't mind waiting. You have perfect patience, right? They didn't want to wait. They wanted to give God some help. And... They looked up in their Bible, Second Condominiums, chapter 7, verse 3, and it says, God helps those who help themselves. The guy over here is actually looking through his Bible. (laughs) He can't find it in the directory. Um, It's not there. It's not there. You can't run ahead of God. You can't manipulate God. But they are going to try. And so they look at each other, and Sarah says to Abraham, we got no children. So they come up with a brilliant strategy. I call it the broodmare strategy. Yeah. Remember that maid we picked up in Egypt? And Abraham says, yeah, she's good looking. And uh, Sarah says, well, I can't have children. And she blames it on God. You look here at the text. She says, God's prevented me from having children. It's not my fault. And so they, she says, look, take Hagar, my servant, and lay with her and have a son, and then that son will be ours. And by the way, uh, we... They actually have found old, you know, ancient stone inscriptions that that was kind of a custom of that day of of 2000 B.C. to do that. And so there's plenty of precedent for this, and they probably had known others that had had done this. And so they they thought they were justified in doing it, even though God had clearly told them that Sarah was going to have a child, a son of her own. So Sarah said, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so please go into her so that I shall obtain children through her. And Abraham says, Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so after Abraham lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abraham's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, up to this point, I take it, you know, she had been a servant, a slave, and acted like it, and was probably very humble, did whatever she was told. But now, suddenly, the relationships change. She, Hagar looks up and says, yeah, Abraham, he's got a little, he's got an eye for me. <laughs> and... I'm pregnant with his child, and his, my child is going to be the heir. We're going to take over. Yeah. So suddenly, the servant becomes the rival. See? The rivalry begins. So Sarah says to Abram, May the wrong done to me upon you. I gave my maid under your arm, so this is all your fault. And like any good husband, Abraham says, "What me? Why well, did me? I didn't do it." And she says, "I was. I am despised in her sight. She's treating me horribly." I can't put up with this. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is not right. God knows this isn't right. But Abraham says to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. She belongs to you. So you do what you think is right. So naturally she says, Okay, she's out of here. And gives her the boot. So now she's out <laughs> on her own, pregnant, in the wilderness, and look at verse 7. Something amazing happens. Supernatural. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. By the spring on the way to Shur. And he says, this is the, the messenger from God. That's what the, the Greek word, or, or in this case the Hebrew word, both mean messenger. And they may be translated angel, uh, same thing. And so the messenger, the angel, uh, says to her, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress. I want you to go back, and I want you to change your attitude and submit to her, submit yourself to her authority. And moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. This, son, this child in, in your womb is, is a son, and he is going to have many, many, many sons. In fact, he's going to have 12, which, hmm, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there's Ishmael's going to have 12 sons. Something's, that rivalry is kind of boiling up, isn't it? So the angel of the Lord says to her further, and this is prophetic. The rest of this is prophetic. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He's heard you, and you're crying. And this son, this is important, so pay attention to this here. Look at verse 12. This is why it costs $60 to fill up your tank. (laughs) This son, Ishmael, will be a wild, and it literally is ass. A wild ass, or donkey, nicely. And uh, that wild ass is also uh, called an onager. And if you want to see a nasty-looking donkey, Google, when you leave here, Google onager. It's a wild donkey that lives in uh, the arid lands like Israel and Saudi Arabia and around there. And they are literally untamable and mean. They bite, they kick they're nasty and so this is a great image of what Ishmael and all of Ishmael's descendants are going to be it's going to be a wild donkey of a man a wild ass of a man and his hand meaning violence his hand will be against everyone He's going to be, they're going to be all against each other and against everybody else His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And It makes for a great uh, image, this wild ass. Ishmael and his descendants will be a stubborn, warlike, contentious, nomadic race that will harass Israel for the next 4,000 years. And all you've got to do is pull out your history books. You can do it in the Bible. The Bible followed the historical narrative all the way through, and that's exactly what's happened. And even until today. And in Genesis 25, we won't take time to go there because we're almost through, but Genesis 25, God literally gave them what is now known as Saudi Arabia. Ishmael, I am giving you the land to the east of here, Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And of course, that's where they went and that's where they developed as a, as a nation just like the prophecies and so she believed and she came back and did what God the angel of the Lord had told her to do okay so this is the root this is the beginning Ishmael is this first illegitimate son of Abraham and uh Angel gave this prophecy of what kind of guy he would be and where he would live and the relationship that he would have with his brother-to-be. So as you look forward, chapter 17, God tells him again, no, I'm going to give you a son from Sarah. I'm going to give you a son from Sarah in chapter 17. And as a sign of the covenant, he gives them what we call the circumcision. As a sign of the covenant, I want you to circumcise yourself and all males that are born to you and all the males that are in your family. I want you to be circumcised because every day, it's it's the perfect thing to do because it's all about, I want you to remember our deal, our covenant, my promises. And you can imagine uh, every day you go to do your business and you see that and you remember God's promise and so that's this is where it began right here circumcision in chapter 17 remembering God's uh, promise establishing his covenant with them Uh, and then uh, and by the way you know another another great joke Abraham the story goes uh, Abraham says okay let me get this deal straight the Arabs get the oil And we have to cut off the end of our what? (laughs) (laughs) So chapter 21, I'll skip the Sodom and Gomorrah story and we'll go right to chapter 21 because this is the birth of Isaac. Right off the bat, Isaac is born and as soon as... As Isaac, this little baby comes out, what happens? Ishmael starts, Ishmael is now about 13, 14 years old, and he begins making fun of the baby, Isaac, and mistreating him. So right off the bat, you have the rivalry being developed. And it got so bad, he was so mean to the little kid, uh, Isaac, that they finally had to ask him to leave. And so it was at this point in chapter 21, uh, after Isaac, the, the true son, uh, his legitimate son, uh, in the Bible, the child of the promise, Abraham, son of the promise, uh, he becomes the, the rightful heir, and the angel of the Lord tells uh, Abraham and Hagar that Ishmael, I mean Abraham and Sarah, that Ishmael and Hagar have to leave. And so they leave and, and go to the east, all right, and then uh, in chapter 22, you have that ultimate test. We've been told that Abraham believes God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but we find out through his works that it is true through the test in chapter 22. So he believed way before in chapter 15, but it is proven proven in chapter 22. And as you look at that, that's what, in the New Testament, especially in the book of James, Paul does the same thing, but in the book of James, he says, you know, that's the way faith is. Faith always produces works. That's the relationship of faith and works. You believe first, you have the faith first, but faith that you have always produces works. And so James uses this story as proof of that. Abraham had believed, and then when he took... Isaac his only son up to be sacrificed you knew that he believed because you wouldn't do that if you didn't fully believe in what God was doing and and be obedient to him so the ultimate test he passes and Abraham is established as the patriarch as the, the, the original one that God has redeemed and in Romans 9 and several other places in the New Testament, we're told uh, it's not just the Jews, it's not just Isaac and his descendants that were, that were saved. Paul says, and Paul's Jewish, so, you know, makes a lot of more sense when he says it. But, you know, it's not just the blood child or the direct, you know, physical descendant that, of Abraham that's saved. It's the spiritual, believing descendant that's saved. And so he's writing to the Gentile church in Rome and he's saying, so all you who believe are actually in God's eyes descendants of Abraham. And therefore God, because you believe, just like Abraham, he is saying, I declare you righteous. Righteous because you believe in Christ as your Savior. All right, well, let me wrap this up in conclusion. Uh, talking about the Middle East rivalry, this, this is the roots of it, this great rivalry between uh, I, Isaac and Ishmael and the many descendants that each had, and they grew up in a land right next to each other, <laughs> right? And, uh, and by the way, I, I've also been asked... Uh, many times stuff like, why did God bless an undeserving Hagar? Why didn't he just let him get out of there the first time? And why did he make those promises to bless her? And why did God give them the land to the east that had all the oil? If Israel is the promised, land, the promised people chosen, why did he give the Arabs all the oil? What you see here is God's providential sovereign working. He purposely raised up an antagonist, an antagonist for Israel, for his people, to test them until the end of time, until Christ comes back. And so they have had this rival antagonist throughout their entire history. And God has used that to test their faith, whether they would believe and trust in him or not. And of course, Moses had told them, you know, if you believe God and trust him completely, you'll live in the land and have peace and prosperity. Unfortunately, the time that they actually did that was very, very limited. And even now, they don't have peace and prosperity, and they don't have all the land that God gave them for the same reasons. They have not trusted the Lord completely as he prescribed. Okay? Uh, and so in conclusion, in, in the Middle East, you know, you've got this rivalry, and take Jerusalem as the perfect example of the rivalry between the Jews and the Arabs or the you know the Muslims and the Jews. Um, they have a rock there on what well was Mount Moriah that was supposedly the actual rock that Mo that Abraham put Isaac on, or if you're Muslim, Ishmael on, to sacrifice to God, and then God saved them. That rock is the same rock that the temple, the Solomon's temple was built on so this is a holy rock and the Jews if you go there now in that rabbi's tunnel they get as close as they can in that tunnel to where that rock would be and there's a whole bunch of them in there It always creates a traffic jam (laughs) because they're in there praying and they're putting you know their paper prayers in the wall there you go what are they doing here well this is as close to that rock as they can get the Muslims go up there they believe that this is the rock that Muhammad stood on when God came and got him and he arose to heaven from this rock. And so this is a holy rock to both Judaism and Islam. I was, uh, before they closed it in 94, I was able to go down in the basement of the dome of the rock, this big golden dome, which is a a Muslim shrine built on the rock I was able to go down in the basement and see the rock. And it looks just like some big thing of bedrock like you see in the hill country that just kind of, you know, rubs out of the ground and it's sitting there. But I mean, there's like a thousand people down on their knees praying and kissing this rock. And that kind of strikes us, you know, and we can't understand that. And it hit me, you know, there's the Bible, the New Testament talks about another rock, another rock. And uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 tells us, we come to Jesus as a living rock. He is our cornerstone, our foundation that we've built our life on. And that foundation has been rejected by other men, but is a choice and precious foundation in the sight of God. So we believe in that actual rock, that actual foundation, Jesus Christ, that God has provided for us to be saved as opposed to all these world religions that have the whole world stirred up in such a mess. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories that reveal what's going on in the real world. It's just incredible. Thank you, Lord for revealing yourself to us, for giving us the truth, Lord, for being so gracious and providing a Savior for us. And we pray in His name, amen. <laughs>